And from Race of the One Light, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Kriyananda. How democratic is truth? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. We live in an age when people assume that knowledge should be available equally to all. In matters susceptible of judgment by normal common sense, however, everyone knows their missiles is limited. The, uh, let me see. Everybody knows there are exceptions. Access to the control room for intercontinental missiles is limited by universal consent to a very few. Access to the controls of passenger airlines is limited to those with the necessary knowledge for operating them, and also to those with the proper authorization. If people don't see the disadvantages of making more subtle knowledge universally available, it is not only because they are ignorant of the risk involved. In the case of subtle knowledge, the main disadvantage in making it universally available is the harm it may, it may do to one who isn't ready for it and who may even mock it. True, by mocking truth, he may undermine the faith of a few truth seekers. But then, such tests can only be beneficial as a means of strengthening faith. Again, true, the clever doubters' misperception of those truths may dissuade a few seekers from following the spiritual path. But if a seeker really is sincere, he will recognize the truth eventually because it resonates with his own being. No, the greatest problem occurs to the shallow adapter himself. To give him an opportunity to affirm his ignorance might only estrange him even more from the truth, delaying the time when he will turn, as all people must eventually, to the light. Thus, the scriptures advise not secrecy, but discretion in the sharing of truth. Jesus Christ says in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 7, Give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. And in see Krishna says in the 18th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Never speak of this truth to one who is without self-control or devotion, who renders no service, who does not care to hear, or who speaks ill of me. Thus, through Holy Scriptures, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. So good morning, everyone. My name is Atman, and this is Bhakti Marg, and it's our pleasure to share Sunday service here with you today in this beautiful day that uh, we'll take advantage of while we can. So I'd like to start with a reading from Whispers from Eternity, Prayer Demands and Poems by <coughs> Paramahansa Yogananda. This one is entitled, Q 
cure spiritual deafness and make me listen to the chorus of noble qualities. Can the blind man appreciate the light? Can the deaf man appreciate song? Oh, Father, how can a person intoxicated with the pleasures of the senses appreciate clearly the benefits of good health and the physical energy and mental clarity that come with self-control? Father, how can the luxury satiated and sense surfeited hear the celestial peace-giving chorus of noble qualities in simple, humble, but spiritually rich souls? Bless us that we may behold in the subtle, beautiful rays of good habits this truth, that virtue is far more attractive, invigorating, and satisfying than vice, and that it opens the way for us to hear thy guiding voice behind all other sounds. So I think we've all, most of us have probably heard the story of uh, Swami Kriyananda when he came to this path. He was in New York. He had spent a number of years as a truth seeker. He finally found the autobiography of a yogi. He read the book and he decided that was it. He had found it. He took the next bus across the States. And while he was traveling, he was praying fervently for two things. One, I want to be your disciple. I want to gain self-realization. And also, I want to share that with everyone. These truths are so amazing. This is so important. I want to share this with all. And that sharing has been a part of Ananda, part of what Kriyananda had done in this world ever since that time. And thank God for us, because if he hadn't felt so inspired to share, we may not be here. We may not have found these teachings. We may not have had all the wonderful things that came through Master, through Swamiji to us. I mean, sharing has always been a part of what Kriyananda was about, of who he was. From the very early days of this community, the first thing he did was start a retreat. And he invited people to come and he gave lectures and he gave weekend programs. It wasn't just trying to find a few people and create a little idyllic life in the country. It was a mission to share. He was out speaking during the weeks. He was then came back to the retreat on the weekend and would share and, and bring people. Running a retreat, as uh, we probably know, or you can guess, is not an easy business. It is something that you're combining being a hotel where you're serving people good food, you're having nice rooms, and you're also teaching them, and you're also giving them lots of energy. And it's uh, something that's not necessarily a money-making proposition. And in the early years of Ananda, especially, it was a strain on the finances of a nascent community. And many times people would say, Swami, you know, maybe we should close the retreat because, you know, then we could really get the farm going and we could get our businesses going. And, you know, Swami wouldn't hear anything of it. It said, well, you know, you can close the retreat, but it's fundamental to what we're doing and I'm going to continue doing that. And he also published books. He would, in his spare time, write all these books. And these books uh, were not necessarily bestsellers. They haven't necessarily found their audience yet, but it was always part of who he was to reach out, to share, to continue doing this. And at first blush, you might say, well, that's kind of normal. I mean, that's what spiritual organizations do, right? They reach out, they teach, they try to get people signed up, they get them on the mailing list, they get them as donors. I mean, you know, Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, they're all about sharing the teachings and being out there and creating an organization. 
But if you know anything about Swami Kriyananda, you know that that's sort of the last thing that was on his mind of why he was doing this, because he was he thought organizations were, to put it bluntly, unnecessary evil. They were sort of anathema to who he was. He was all about trying to serve individuals. But sharing the teachings and reaching out was the way that he would actually share that actually could serve those individuals. So it wasn't about building an organization and getting a big mailing list. It was about trying to reach all those truth thirsty souls, which he knew were in looking for these teachings. He knew this was what was going to help people. So it was fundamental to Ananda. And because we're drawn in through Ananda, it's also fundamental to a lot of us, to a lot of our paths, the, the sense of sharing, of reaching out, of, of wanting to give and serve others with what we have, with what we've received. And I think uh, many people could probably relate to that, especially when we first get onto the spiritual path. We're always pretty enthusiastic and we've learned some, a few things and what do we want to do? We want to share those with our friends and with our family. And I know I did. And I, um, I took a yoga teacher training course. And then I hadn't, I'd been living in California. And then I was back at my parents' house in New York after the yoga teacher training course. And I was really, really enthused with this. So what did I do? I gave a yoga class to my parents. And my parents were in their late 50s. They had never done Hatha yoga. They weren't particularly interested in doing Hatha yoga. And I wasn't all that great at teaching 50-year-olds how to do Hatha yoga either. But they indulged me. And they, in our living room, we, we had a yoga class. And it might, be, it might have been the last yoga class that they ever took. I don't know. And you know, my brother, I would share. I tried to share some teachings with my brother. I'd give him books. And I'd, you know, he had, there was an interest there. There was, a, there was a spark there. But then at one point, my sister-in-law came and said, don't be messing with his karma. <laughs> said, okay, you know, maybe she's not open to him being open. And so I better, you know, I better back off. And, and uh, so, you know, it wasn't necessarily with the purest heart like Swami was sharing that we often share. And we often share for reasons of we're looking for approval. We're looking for validation of this shift that we've taken in our lives. And it's natural that we want our friends and our family to support us in this change that we've taken. But unfortunately, it, it doesn't always work all that well. I mean, think how long it took us to get to this point where we were getting to the spiritual path. And it doesn't mean that all your friends and family are right there. And the only thing that's missing is you being able to tell them what they're missing. It, you know, <laughs> It, also, it often doesn't work that way, and we often get our enthusiasm dampened a little bit. And it's, you have to sort of pull back and go, oh, maybe I should be a little more careful in my sharing. And maybe there's something more to this than, than just, you know, bursting forth with all this enthusiasm, the things that I have. And that's what the teaching, that's what the readings are about today. It's a little bit about of a how to have discrimination, how to, how to share teachings, how to be effective. And it's effective in a couple ways. It's effective for us as devotees, and it's also effective for the person or persons that we're trying to reach. So if you're going to teach something, you can think of it, there's sort of three parts. There's the source of what you're trying to teach. There's you as the teacher or the channel trying to 
take something from that source and bring it through. And there's a third part, there's a recipient. There's someone who are persons who are receiving those teachings who are making some use of these things. And let's look a little bit of each of those because they're all important to both our spiritual growth and as it says in the readings, warnings, that person's spiritual growth. It's important to be a little bit sensitive. So what's the source? Well, the source is obviously truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with the deathless self within. So truth is there. What we're trying to teach is not some mental construct that we've come up with, some clever way of things, some newest way of putting things together. We're trying to tune in to what's there, to truth. And thank God we have a master, an avatar, who brought that into the world for us. And through our teacher Swamiji, through Master, through Yogananda, through our line of gurus, there's an opening. There's an opening to that source. Because that source is not necessarily easy to comprehend. And it's easy to get pretty confused when you start bringing things through the imperfection of language, of our own mental processes, of our own filters of ego. But we always have to remember what are we trying to do? We are trying to impart truth in this world. And if we're confused and we're not in touch with what that source is, we're really not going to do much good for ourselves or for other people. And we can again look to Swamiji for the main example of how to do this. He never presumed on his own inspiration, on his own creative works. He always said, no, this, this came from master. This came from a higher source. If he didn't feel it was coming from a higher source, he wouldn't bring it into manifestation. He wouldn't share it. It was always, how does this relate back to truth? How does this go back? And even, even at, you know, the delusion is omnipresent. And even in Mount Washington, when he was a monk there, you know, here are all these monks and nuns with master, learning these teachings from their guru. And they were still confusing things. When he was first there, if you remember the story in the path, that somebody would tell him something, you know, and it sounded a little bit far out. It was a little bit getting into the more esoterica of what was happening elsewhere and other times. And <clears throat> he finally learned to say, did Master say that? And if Master didn't say that, he wouldn't listen to it. <clears throat> so we have to be in tune with that source. And we have to think of ourselves as a channel. If we're just in tune with a source, what we're trying to do is just be a clear and open channel, a way to bring this truth out. And one of the important reasons for doing this, there's actually a couple reasons why we're doing this. One is for our own benefit. The channel is blessed by what flows through it. By sharing, by keeping this flow of knowledge, this flow of inspiration, of intuition going, it helps us in our own spiritual growth. The more we're an open channel, the better we can perceive God to tune into that source. The other reason we're doing it is because the masters need channels in this world. It's not all going to come about just because they wrote a few books, the Swami wrote books and did music. It needs much more than that. It needs instruments. It needs people in this world who can bring that, <clears throat> that out into manifestation, who can share that. So there's also some pitfalls with this because we're trying to share these things and this is all good. But 
we have to remember there's a sense of humility in this because the ego is multifaceted and really sneaky. And what happens? We have uh, think we've mastered something and we're sharing it. <clears throat> maybe we're giving a class. Maybe we're giving a talk. Maybe we're just sharing with friends. And all of a sudden, this little voice creeps in and says, wow, that was really good. Yeah, that was a great example. You know, that was a really good talk. There's that little ego getting in there. And it's nice teaching because what happens? People who are hungry for these teachings give you a lot of feedback, a lot of approval. They're, you know, a lot of energy. And that feels really good. Well, how does it feel really good? You got to be careful. It can feel really good to the ego of going, yeah, I'm a spiritual teacher. Oh, I guess I got this down. But <laughs> that's a trap. We're trying to do this to get out of the ego. We're not trying to get it to reinforce the ego. And that spiritual ego is just as insidious as any other kind of the ego. <coughs> so the other part is, another insidious part of this is how, how do we really gain this understanding? And what Master and Swamiji taught us was to more than anything else, tune in intuitively, that you really need to feel it in the heart. You need to have a connection. You need to, in deep meditation, seek that guidance, seek that grace. It's not so much about intellectual understanding. The intellectual understanding, it's a little bit like the plumbing. You know, the, the grace is the flow, and then we have to get the plumbing right to be able to transmit that. As Swami said, often he felt like in his writings, he was trying to get the, the flow right, to get the, the words to channel, to take this inspiration, to bring it out. Well, that isn't the way that usually this world teaches us how to learn things. And I had a very interesting experience, again, back when I was new on the path, I had, um, I had been a consultant in Washington, D.C., and then I was, in, I was in graduate school, and I was in an interdisciplinary program. And so in both in my consulting work and in this interdisciplinary, I had a, the, the chance to learn lots of new disciplines and lots of new things. And I got pretty good at having a superficial understanding of stuff. I see that later. But you basically, you learn some basic vocabulary. You learn some basic concepts of it, and then you start putting those together, and pretty soon you could start talking like you knew what you were talking about. And in our consulting firm, this is what they paid us for. We would, you know, bring in this stuff, and then we would spin out these little papers, and, you know, it sounded like we knew what we were talking about. We didn't really know what we were talking about. We were just, you know, gathering pieces from here and there. And in academia, it got a little bit better. There were a few more checks and balances to say that you knew what you were talking about, but it was a similar thing. You learn the basic vocabulary, the basic concepts, you know, you, a few of the basic relationships, and you start spinning these things together and hoping you can keep a coherent logical structure. Well, that's how I approached the spiritual path. So you start learning these things, and you hear this new Sanskrit vocabulary and all these wonderful concepts and all these new things, and you start bringing them together. And I remember uh, I was at this ashram in Berkeley, and I had this sense of, yeah, I think I'm getting this. I mean, you know, yeah, I know this one. I know what that means. I know what that means. And yeah, I could start putting these things together. I, I could teach this. I mean, I could give a talk about this. And well, guess what? 
you know, that intellectual understanding is not what it's about. And it's going to be shallow when you when you try to relate it that way, unless you have that connection to the source behind it. If you're just mouthing these intellectual concepts and putting stuff out there without some kind of a depth or understanding, you might help some people. I mean, hopefully you got it at least somewhat right and you're not putting out falsehoods. But if you're not really tapped into that source, you're not going to really be effective in what you're doing. I have another image that sticks in my mind when I think about this is of a up at the Expanding Light dining room, there was a, a fellow here who's a very a wonderful fellow. He's joining the community, and he uh, spent a lot of time reading Master's books and other books, probably, and even farther afield books. And I just had this image of him sitting there on the couches. We used to have these funky couches in the Expanding Light dining room. And he'd just be sitting there and sort of holding forth to whoever would listen to him. And, you know, we'd have some interesting discussions, but most of the people in the community would realize, well, this guy's really not all that in a tune. He's not really tuned into what's going on. And a lot of the guests would get drawn in there and said, wow, that's really interesting. Whoa, wow, that's amazing. This, well, what happened? You know, he did this for quite a while and then he left. He never really got beyond that intellectual part. And it was, to him, it was a game almost. I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions on his development, but where he was at that point was just playing with his concepts and that those mental structures and the intellectual part of it was more of interest to him than it was to actually see what was here, to deepen himself in attunement. And so it's important, again, as we're trying to be channels, trying to be good teachers, how do we do this? And again, we take our example from Master, from Swamiji, they were uh, incredibly adept. Well, master's a master, and Swami was quite an advanced soul, but they were incredibly adept at tuning into people where they were and teaching them at a level and giving them what was needed at that point. And we're probably not going to be as adept as they are at doing that, but it's still something that we can aspire to and try to do. For example, there's the... One of my favorite stories is this uh, erudite intellectual scholar came to see Master to clarify some questions of deep philosophical import and understanding. And so he sat down with a master at Mount Washington and he started out in this long question about the difference asham, prajnadi, samadhi, and prajnadi, samadhi, and the difference when you go to the higher lokas and this and this. And Master just looked at him and said, love God. And so he sort of took a step back, and then he launched into his next question of equally esoteric and, you know, very important concepts and intellectual, and Master just said, love God. And this went on for several questions, and of course, Master just said, love God, and walked out of the room. It wasn't what that person needed at that time. It wasn't that Master couldn't answer those questions. It was that he was going down a road that wasn't going to help him with that intellectual understanding. And Swami as well, when, and Master, when they work with individuals, they would emphasize more devotion to one person, emphasize more service to another person, emphasize more intellectual understanding to some people. But it was always what that person needed at that point. And it wasn't about furthering the organization. It wasn't about gratifying their own egos as, well, this would be a really nice thing to say because I thought of this great example. It was tuning into the individual and, 
and giving them what was needed at that moment that they could relate to. And Swamiji, there's many, many wonderful stories about how he worked in very, very subtle levels of tuning into people. And one of my favorite stories is one Asha told in the book, uh, Swami Kriyananda, as we've known him. And Asha came over to Swamiji's apartment one afternoon and Swamiji was sitting on a couch uh, holding the hand of a, another devotee and consoling her. She was in tears and really being very compassionate and consoling and helping her through some particular problem or, or thing she was working on. And that woman finally got through it and got up and left. And, you know, then Asha had come over because she was also dealing with some difficulties and some problems. She had sort of hit a wall in, a, in an assignment that Swami had given her to do, and she was feeling hopeless and unable to continue that, unable to do that. And Swami, as she was going, you know, Asha in her mind, as she told this later, was, wow, yeah, maybe we can sit down and he can give me some of that wonderful energy I just saw. So what did Swami do? Swami got up and went over to his desk and <clears throat> opened the drawer and pulled out the some of his dead batteries. So he had this collection of partially used batteries. And so he would take a battery and he'd take his little current thing and he'd start testing the batteries to see which batteries were good and which batteries won. He was sort of sorting his batteries. And Asha was sort of sitting there on the couch, kind of dumbfounded and not really knowing where to start. And she kind of put out a few things and Swami gave her no energy to her, you know, difficulties. He's there testing his batteries. And finally, she just got up and said, okay, well, uh, I guess I'll be going now. And Swami said, goodbye. Okay. <laughs> and it turns out that through that, she just realized, she started thinking, said, well, he must know what he's doing. And okay, what I need is, you know, she sort of got, got her energy up and said, I must not need, you know, this consolation or this, you know, diving into it. I just need to put out more energy. And so she was able actually to rise to the occasion and was able to get through what it was she had to do. And Swami later on said in a public setting, he said, yeah, Asha passed a very important test this week and I'm very proud of her or what she did. And, and Asha said to Swami, well, why didn't you tell me that, you know, that this was really important and you couldn't help me? He said, I didn't think it would help you. You know, this is what would help you at this moment. So... Again, the, the masters and the great teachers can work on those levels. We have to be a little bit careful about working with others on those levels because we don't always necessarily know what the best for them is. But we can also tune in to people that we're trying to help. And the Bhagavad Gita reading this, this week gives us some really clear guidelines of how to do that, some really important things to do. It says, you know, do not share these teachings with people who have no self-control. Okay, why is that important? Well, you can see the image of a pail that you're trying to fill up with water or milk and there's all these holes in it. There's no self-control. Everything you pour it in and it just comes right back out again. And especially at this day and age, I just have this, this image of, of people of, uh, you know, careening from one one-minute YouTube video to the next. And so they, they see Swami Kriyananda and say, wow, this is amazing. And then the next minute they're watching cats. And then they're watching natural disasters. And then they're watching politicians insult each other. And they're watching sports events. And it's just, you know, they're just careening around. There is no self-control. There is no ability to concentrate and focus. 
And you might as well, you know, you could have a fire hose. If there's no, nothing to hold that, no self-control, no concentration, it's just going to dissipate. They also say those who are without devotion. Well, why is devotion important? I mean, devotion is a hard thing for a lot of people. And by devotion, it means there has to be some heart awakening, that there has to be something that looks for that unitive sense rather than just the intellectual of chopping it apart. So the intellect divides. It chops things into pieces. It looks for differences. What we're trying to impart is a unitive reality. To get to that unitive reality, again, as I said, the intellect isn't going to be that good. It needs to have some sort of intuitive understanding, some sort of devotional tuning into the heart center of love, of intuition. And they also say, those who render no service should not be served. Well, what's so important about service? Well, just like for us as teachers, it's a tool for us. We have to be looking outside ourselves. Otherwise, that spiritual ego comes in. Well, the same thing for those who are receiving it. If they're just spiritual bargain hunters who are looking at, you know, what's in it for me, sort of the quintessential new age, well, I could try this technique and I can get this and I can get that and I can do this. And, you know, if, unless they're looking to say, how is this of service to someone else besides myself, to a broader audience, they may not be that receptive. And what they also say is those who are asking to hear. Well, you think that might be sort of self-evident, but how many times do we try to teach people who aren't really asking the right question yet? If they aren't asking the right question and you're giving them the right answer, they're not going to get the right answer because they don't have the right question. So they have to be asking it. There has to be a certain dissatisfaction with the status quo. There has to be some questioning about what the heck is happening in life. There's got to be something else going on here. Because if you don't have that, you're probably not going to be so open to these teachings. And again, it's, it's a matter of degrees. It's, it's not necessarily going to hurt. But remember in the reading, it said also, you have to be careful because if you force something on somebody before they're ready to hear it, it might actually set them back. Every one of us eventually is going to have to turn to the truth, is going to have to turn to some pathway back to God. It's inevitable. It's the way the soul was made. If something is forced on someone too soon, it may set them back an incarnation. It may set them back certain decades. They may just say, no, not that. No. You know, I remember that. Yeah, my mother tried to force me to do that. No, I don't want to go there. And, you know, so be careful. They have to be asking the question. And the last one is, do not give these teachings to those who speak ill of me. Well, again, now it seems somewhat obvious if somebody's, you know, disrespectful of God and not wanting to be open to this, why would you teach them? But again, there's a subtle level here that sometimes people, again, enter into it in a typically modern way of looking at knowledge of, you know, I have to make sure this is true. I have to really look at this, and I'm an iconoclast. I don't just believe things just because somebody feeds this to me and tells me, I really have to get in there and really see what's going on here. Well, that can be quite destructive. It can be destructive to us as teachers, but it can also be destructive to them because those who are filled with doubt, it says, those who are always looking for the fault-finding, always looking for the naysaying principle, are pretty good at turning things to ashes, but they're not very good at actually picking something up and being able to take it. And so, 
you have to be careful. You have to look at other people's magnetism. You know, their magnetism is going to affect you. It might take you off the path. It might give some doubts that you can't handle in it. So look, if somebody's very powerful in that naysaying principle, maybe it's not the best time to teach them. So just want to conclude with saying that to remind you, it is important to our path to share. We do need to do it with a little bit of discrimination, with a little bit of intuition, making sure we're connected to the source, making sure we're clear why we're doing this, not for the ego, but for our own <coughs> ability to keep that channel open and for the ability to help people. And the thing that I try to keep in mind is what Swamiji would often say when, he's, when people are, he asked people, what, how should I teach? He said, don't worry about what you're saying, just share yourself. I mean, the thing that we can do to teach the most in this world, to bring light, which God knows is needed in this world right now, is just to be beacons of light, to live our light, to live and let it shine. And don't be afraid of letting it shine. Be the best devotees that we can, do the best meditation that we can, under, get the best understanding we can. And then just let God take care of the rest. Give it back to God and just don't be afraid to share who you are, who you are with people, because that's what's going to inspire people. That's what's going to bring people to this path. That's what's going to bring people to what they're really looking for. In keeping with the theme of today, truth can never die. Defy. The world may 
change or disappear, but truth can never die. Come, you're a man, no passive stone. Stand up and call your soul your own. Go on alone, go on alone. Vanish weakness, go on alone. Go on alone, go on alone. Go on alone.